0: They're still <laughs> This morning, continuing in our series from Ephesians 4 and 5, Walk Worthy, we're in part number two in the second part of the text here in Ephesians 4. We've been looking at uh, verses 17 through 32. This morning, we're actually going to look at the very end of verse 24. We're looking at true righteousness and holiness. But in our text, in this paragraph that we've been working through, as Paul is contrasting the way the Gentiles walk, that is, lost and the way the saved walk, he's reminding us, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And that verse 24, end of verse 24, is what we're looking at this morning. The overall context of what Paul is saying, if we are saved, then we're not going to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. That is those who are still lost, those who are still needing to be saved. If we are saved, we will be, dis- be distinct in the way that we live. We should be the way that we talk, the way that we live life. And that's when we use the term here walk worthy. That walk is your daily walk, the way you live your daily life. As we're doing that, we will face trials and tribulations, and we will face them differently than the world does. Because of grace now, we actually can suffer and experience joy and the fruit of the Spirit, even in the midst of grievous circumstances. And we can overcome when we're tempted, when when our flesh tries to lead us into sin. We have talked about now having that ability, not only just to want to do what is right, but actually to do what is right. So we have heard, we have been taught by Christ as his disciple, as we follow him, as we've looked at the text, we've put off the old man, we're being renewed, and we will have put on the new man, which the text tells us is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And those, the, the phrase there is what caught my attention, that's what I wanted to talk about this week, that specific phrase that we are now, as a new creation, created in true righteousness And holiness. So that's the question for us this morning. What is true righteousness and what is true holiness? The Bible does speak often about righteousness and it does speak often of holiness. But what do these words mean, especially in this context? How does this relate to us as we are walking as a new creation as we've put on the new man? The new man, who we are in Christ, is created in true righteousness and holiness. Now we read that, and some tend to think that it is true righteousness and holiness, but the true actually modifies both. It is true righteousness and true holiness. So those are the terms we're going to look at this morning. We would admit that there are people around us, possibly even people in our church, possibly even people in our families, that seem to be righteous, or they may think that they're righteous, but under close examination, If we were to look at the true fruit of their lives, if what they are bearing, we find out that it's a righteousness built on self. It is what the Bible calls self-righteousness, not true righteousness. It's a hypocritical righteousness. It is fake. It's arrogant. The word to be a hypocrite is to be a play actor. It is I'm playing like I am something that I am not. It is self-esteem boastering. If, if what you are doing as a disciple of Christ bolsters your self-esteem, you're doing it wrong. The gospel is death to self and life to Christ. It's not about making us feel better. And in fact, so much that the world has to offer that is supposed to make us feel better, it doesn't last and you really don't feel better, do you? It wears you out and you feel miserable. It's not that we're coming to follow Christ so that our self-esteem might be bolstered so that we might feel better about who we are. What we find out is that the fruit of the spirit is better than feelings anyway. And when you're walking with Christ, you understand when you're walking in obedience, your feelings are going to fall in line with reality. And honestly, could you be more blessed or more happy than when you're walking with Christ in obedience? And that's what we have to look at. Are we doing something to bolster self-esteem? And that is the pride of life. That is self-righteousness, which really is not righteousness at all. True righteousness is defined as a single word, the word uprightness. And it's as opposed to being crooked or off, it is upright. And the term is taken to mean at its heart that righteousness is the characteristic required of men by God. God requires of us that we be righteous. So this is the standard for us that God sets. Now, how do we measure righteousness? What is God's standard of righteousness? His son himself. It's his righteousness. So he expects us to be like him. And if you really want to make your self-esteem feel good, you realize that Jesus says that the goal for us is to be perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. So, So you've not arrived until you're perfect. We get a long way to go, don't we? That's why we are to push and to strive and to strain at this goal. So in other words, this is being in a state of rightness with God. We please him, we're acceptable to him, we are right with him. And of course, that modifier, the word true, it means just that. It is authentic. It is true, real righteousness. No deception. It's not fake. There is real, living righteousness now in our lives. With this new creation that we are, with the new man that we've put on, we now, through Christ, have been reconciled. That is, we have been made right with God. And it's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. This is what's amazing when we talk about true righteousness. We are incapable of being truly righteous, completely incapable. And so Christ gave us his righteousness, and you don't get any more righteous than that. His perfect obedience to God, to the Father. Christ was pleasing to the Father. We know this because God tells us several times. We see in the scripture. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ was obedient. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He honored and loved and exalted God. And because he kept God's law perfectly. And remember too, when we look at God's law, oftentimes because we talk about not being under the law, but being under grace, we have a harsh view of law. You don't understand there's nothing wrong with the law. The law of the Lord is perfect because it's a reflection of his character. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. We think that the law and the gospel are against each other. No, the law shows us that we need the gospel and it drives us to the gospel by condemning us, by showing us that we have fallen short. What's the standard? All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God, his holiness, his righteousness. So the law tells us about his character, about his attributes, about who he is. And because Christ kept the law perfectly, that is, he was always completely obedient to the father, then he was genuinely righteous as a man. And he's given, he's imputed that righteousness to us. Now, when we talk about the word imputed, we talked about this when we were looking at systematic theology and we're looking at the doctrine of justification. There are some, uh, the Catholic teaching, for example, is not that that the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us, but that it was infused into us and that it's joined with what we bring. So we bring good works and Christ's righteousness, meld them together, and present that to be acceptable to God, and we're still not, so we get to go to purgatory for millions of years. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the true righteousness of Christ that isn't just joined with us. It's given to us as if it is ours, so that now God looks at us and sees the righteousness of his Son. And that, to to me, the doctrine of justification has to be the most humbling doctrine. Because it's God declaring that we're right with him. And it's not based on anything that we've done. Exactly the opposite. It's based on what Christ has done and what has been imputed to us. Because we can't be truly righteous on our own. The best we can do in our attempts to please God without Christ. Isaiah 64 6 says is an unspeakable and vile pile of rags. All our righteousness Isaiah tells us, before God on our own are as a pile of filthy rags but this new man the new creation that we are in Christ has had the righteousness of Christ imputed we have it credited to our account and that that righteousness is absolute faithful obedience to god that's the basis then of our being reconciled to him the true righteousness that is imputed to us by Christ we also see that the new man then is created in true holiness that is uh, the the term means a state of devout Piety and those are words that we don't hear very much. Uh, that's that those wouldn't be the words that a lot of people would use to describe holiness. I like this definition though, because devout means devoted, piety to be pious means that we have met God's standards. Now, we know that we can't do that, we know that the problem is we've fallen far short of the standard. I was reading Spurgeon uh, this week, and Spurgeon made the point about how far we have fallen in our sinfulness. When we look at we've fallen short of the glory of God, here's how far. Spurgeon said, if you look and you know that the heavens declare the glory of God, you can just look around at the created order. And now with telescopes and with the pictures that we've got of what's out there, I don't know if you saw one of the new pictures. There was a new picture this week and it's a picture of an area of space and it's called the pillars of creation is what it's been named. And you look at what God has done and are absolutely in awe and amazed. Here's how far we've fallen. Outside the work of Christ, a lost man can look at all of that creation and not even be moved at all to worship God or even to think thoughts about him. To completely miss his glory being declared by all of the creation. That's why Romans says we're without excuse, because the heavens declare his glory. But in our fallenness, we don't even see it. We're completely blind to it. So to be truly holy is to be devoted to living a standard that God has set, a true state of devotion to meeting God's standard. And that's the question. What is his standard? His standard is absolute holiness and not just holiness. How holy is God? Holy, holy, holy. When we realize all of his attributes, I love love that MacArthur said this. When you look at all of the attributes of God, we understand that he is equal in all of his attributes. And it's not that he's made up of a whole bunch of composite parts. Each of those attributes is who he is in totality. But MacArthur said, you know, the Bible, it does tell us that God is love, but it does not tell us that God is love, love, love. The only attribute that it stresses three times is that God is holy, holy, holy. That defines the parameters for every other one of his attributes, by the way. That means his love is holy, holy, holy. His justice is holy, holy, holy. His wrath is holy, holy, holy. All that he is is defined in that state of absolute glorious goodness and perfection. And so his command to us is to be as holy as he is holy. That's not fake. That's not hypocritical. That is not an act that we can put on. You can dress like a Puritan, but that does not mean you're a Puritan, right? You can try and strive and do all that you think that you can do, but if you are advancing yourself and your self-importance and feeding your fleshly appetites to the accolades and the praise of men, that is as far from holiness as you can get. So this true holiness, this is who we are in Christ from the very way that the new man is created. We're created as a new creation, absolutely devoted to being holy, and to meeting God's standard of perfection. That's why there is an instant change in us when we're converted, an instant change, because what we want has changed. And a lot of times we don't even understand that, do we? We just notice something's different. Something has changed fundamentally in who we are. And that's because of what God has done to put in us the want to, to want holiness. Now, the question is, Is this something that we can do on our own? Is this something that we can program? Is this something we can teach ourselves? Of course not. This is a quality that has to be given to us from the outside, from outside of ourselves. On our own, we cannot be holy, and we certainly could not ever hope to meet God's standards on our own. It has to be done through Christ, through abiding in him. A Christian then, as we define it, is a person who was lost and blind and is now found and can see. A Christian is a disciple of Christ who has repented and believed the gospel. A Christian is a new creation created in a right relationship to God and meeting his standards. And how in the world can that be? It's by the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, the work that he has completed on our behalf. If we look then, I want to look in conclusion at, by the way, you know, whenever a preacher says in conclusion, <laughs> you still got three points in a poem to go. But when we, when we look I want to conclude with three verses because there are three other verses today. or Actually, this one plus two others that are the only verses where righteousness and holiness appear together. And so I wanted to look at those. Of course, the first one is here in Ephesians 4.24. We who are in Christ have been transformed and made new. And the new man that we are is created in right relationship to God, meeting his standards because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. The second is in Luke chapter one, verse 75. Uh, And this is in the first chapter of Luke, we're reading the prophecy uh, of Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father. And he is prophesying about John the Baptist and about the Messiah that he's going to announce. There in verses 74 and 75, it says, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So in this prophecy, Zechariah states that the Messiah is coming and he's going to enable the people of God to be able to serve God acceptably. And that service to God, we're told, is going to be done without fear, because of course we know perfect love casts out fear, and this service is to be done in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Because Christ has come, we are now able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. And here's what that looks like. How often do we spend the day? afraid of whether or not God is pleased with us. Now it's right to want to please God. But if we are so motivated by the fact that we think it's going to take what we do to be pleasing to him, we have to be careful because we can do everything that we possibly can think to do in our own power and be absolutely not pleasing to God at all. Because what does Christ say without me? And this, this is the verse, it's right there. Jesus says this, without me, you can squeak by. Without me, you'll figure something out. Without me, well, at the end of the day, you tried your best. No, what does he say? Without me, you can do nothing. What does that mean we need? Him, we need Christ. So that we can live day in and day out without fear, serving God in righteousness and holiness. Because then we know it's not our righteousness and it's not our holiness that makes God pleased with us. Why is God pleased with us? Because he's pleased with his son and all of his son's work has been imputed to us. So him being pleased with Christ means he's pleased with us. Listen, do you know that that means God cannot ever be more pleased with you than he already is? Wow. I mean, that's a statement, isn't it? And we think, well, we disappoint him all the time. Well, sure. And you think he doesn't know that? That's why he says, confess and I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Anything that interrupts that relationship, he has made provision for through Christ. So we can serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. The third verse is in Romans six nineteen. Paul writes there, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, And of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. We learned that we've been freed from sin, and now we're slaves of righteousness. That's why when we don't do what is right, we feel miserable because we're slaves of righteousness. We've been blood bought. It's said that we're slaves of righteousness for holiness. That is where once we were ruled by sin, now we're ruled by righteousness so that we're able to be holy. And all of this flows as a free gift of God through the salvation provided in Christ. This is all God's grace in our life. So that now not only do we want to be righteous, we can be righteous. We can walk in rightness with God. Now, we have to confess that because we are still fallen, because we are still in this fallen flesh, even the most righteous and holy thing that we can do is still tainted, isn't it? John Bunyan said we have to realize, and this this shows you, Bunyan gives us a, a graphic picture of the depths of our sinfulness, which really shows us the magnitude of God's holiness. John Bunyan said there is enough sin in one of our most righteous prayers to condemn the whole world. Enough sin in one prayer because we can't help but taint everything we touch. We did it with creation from the start, didn't we? That's Rich made the point this morning. When Adam and Eve sinned, we were there. We sinned. Why are we in this mess? If you want to find somebody to blame. Well, I'll tell you what. There's new technology that will reveal to you who to blame for the fallen, crazy state of the world. It's called a selfie. There it is. By the way, you know why they call it selfies, right? Because nobody can spell narcissistic It's us. We caused the chaos, and Christ has come to set it back right, and now provided that we might abide in him, that we might overcome what we are without him, because now he is living through us by grace. We see then that everything that has been provided for us and given to us in Christ, everything that we have and experience in life now as a follower of Christ points us and others to him. That's the way it should be. There is no attention drawn to self for our accomplishment of good, for our accomplishment of righteousness, for our accomplishment of holiness, because we know without Christ we couldn't do any of that. Instead, we let our light shine before men by being righteous and being holy as Christ lives in us. We point people to him. John the Baptist said it this way, he must increase, I must decrease. What does that mean? More of him, less of me. Friend of mine in high school, Steve Abbott used to say it this way: you want to know what that means? It means you're walking so closely to Christ, nobody can see you. All they see is him. <laughs> now, I'm gonna I need to prepare you for that, by the way, because if all the world sees in you as Christ, they're gonna hate you because they hate him. But you know when the world reacts so often, this this I think is the sign of how immature Christianity is in the United States right now, that when the world reacts against us, and it's really not even persecution yet, y'all, it's not even and we get offended and it hurts our feelings and how dare they treat because I'm an American and I'm free and blah, 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 blah. You understand if the world reacts against you because they see Christ in you, you should rejoice that they see Christ and not you. If, if, if they see enough of him to provoke a reaction, hallelujah, God's using a sinner like me to proclaim his name and to point people to him. We cannot be right with God on our own. We can't be holy on our own. So God now has recreated us, new, transforming us from darkness to light, adopting us as sons and daughters, and through his son, making us right and pleasing to him. All of that to say this, the Christian life, if true, always points to Christ. A true life of righteousness and holiness does not draw attention to itself. It directs that attention to the source of all righteousness and holiness to Christ himself. The question is, are you a Christian? If you are, by definition, your life should point people to Christ, to point people to the reality of who he is and to the demands of God that we walk in righteousness and holiness. And how glorious is it that God places a demand on us and then by grace gives us everything we need to obey what he commands. That's the good news. We don't have to go find it. We're going to talk uh, from Matthew 13 about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven this morning. And you know, finding God's will is not a mystery. It's not a scavenger hunt. It's plain. You know why I think so many people have a hard time finding God's will? Because they don't want to do what is God's will. They would rather think it was something that they can accomplish. Finding and accomplishing God's will. And let's just take one, one passage of scripture that tells us, see, I said in conclusion, three verses, but I'm adding another one. In conclusion, one verse that tells us this is the will of God in in first Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So are you being sanctified today? Probably, you're probably fighting it. You're being sanctified today. That's God's will. What is sanctification? Growing in holiness. Well, we're right back to our verse, true righteousness and holiness, being like Christ. So we offer ourselves a living sacrifice. Okay, not three verses, five. We offer ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which, Paul says, is the least you can do at your reasonable service. This is our daily call because Christ is all, (coughs) it's all about him. It's all to him. It's all through him. It's all for him. It's all about Christ. This is what we find as we walk in righteousness and holiness. We find our thoughts dwelling on him and his glories instead of on ourselves and our trials and tribulation. We see his goodness and his glory instead of ourselves. And if we boast, what do we boast in? Paul gives us permission to boast about two things. The cross of Jesus Christ and our weaknesses. Why? Because our weaknesses prove the power of the cross. Because God can use people like us to glorify himself. That is what we both did, because it's all about Christ. Let's thank him this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that Christ has finished, that he's accomplished for us and given to us. We thank you for the way that works out and the way we live, even now, waiting for glorification, waiting for Christ to come back so that we might be done with this body of sin and death. We thank you for the recreation, for what has happened inside of us, that you have made us a new creation, created in righteousness, true righteousness and true holiness, so that we might truly be pleasing to you. Father, we thank you that everything that you demand of us to be right with you, you give to us by grace freely, that we can't earn it, can't pay for it, how that would cheapen your grace if there's anything that we could do to add to it. It's all your work. It's all your holiness. It's all your righteousness. And you've imputed it to us so that we might have fellowship with you. We thank you for that finished work in Jesus' name. Amen.